John Aberly. As we go through the show, I think you'll come to understand why I picked that song today to be the uh, in and out of the commercial spots. Very special song going back to a time period that we're going to discuss in great detail today. Uh, most of my audience is in the same age range as I am, which makes us our mid to late 40s, so we're aging. But we were kids during this time period. November 4th, 1979, Iran, United States Embassy. All hell is breaking loose. Politically, no one can understand exactly what is happening if you're living here in the States because most people don't follow it at that time. But what has happened and what we're about to learn during that time period is the politics of the Middle East, is the radical Islam that is followed in certain parts of it. My guest today, Barry Rosen, is one of the original 52 American hostages that was held we're in captivity for 444 days. I can't imagine going through something like that, and I know it's life-changing. We're going to talk with Barry today about the incident. We're also going to discuss the aftermath, having to live with it. And I want to welcome to my show officially now Barry Rosen, former American hostage, also an American hero. Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. Barry, let me ask you this right off the top. And I'm curious. Now, I added an American hero there because, because I do feel that way. I mean, you were representing the United States of America during a very difficult situation that you weren't trained for. You didn't mm-hmm. have the training uh, to resist, POW camp-type training, Sears training, and so forth. How do you feel when people throw that American hero label onto you? Well, it, uh, I find it very hard to uh, accept the fact that I was a hero. I mean, uh, I think I was persistent in, in keeping myself alive during that time of captivity, keeping myself sane. Um, it was pure misery, and I don't particularly think that it w- I was doing anything heroic other than trying to survive the brutality of the captivity. Um, some people may call it a heroic, um, but I don't. I don't really um, do. I like to say you showed your humanitarian side. You showed your inner strength. You stood tall when it was extremely difficult. I, I like to look at it in that perspective. You were just a a person, an average human being who went through a very traumatic experience and came out the other side. A- absolutely, um, and it, it has been a very difficult. Uh, number of years since the captivity um i would say that i would say that um it has affected my life uh, dramatically well you know that and i've got the whole show scripted you know the questions i want to ask i was up early this morning going all through this but i had a feeling i was going to end up kind of freelancing it with you mm-hmm. and that's fine because i feel we're going in directions i i'm going to enjoy the bouncing off of each other here because you kind of gave me a segue here. I would have waited later in the show, but it's here now. You were 34 years old uh, when you were in Iran. You were a uh, press attache. Yes. And I guess to kind of jump forward and say this, you're there for 444 days in captivity. Uh, mm-hmm. There were stories, you know, you're being treated well, then it comes out later, and we'll get into that, that that wasn't even close until the end when they were prepping you to be released, and they had to show somehow that they had treated you in a humane way. Mm-hmm. When you come out the other side, when you land officially in the United States, everything's done. The ticker tape parades are done. People slapping it on the back, asking you this. You've been debriefed by God knows how many people at that point. Who is Barry Rosen after that? Are you the same person in any way that began the captivity 444 days earlier. Is there anything left of the original Barry? Oh, yeah. 
there's there's plenty left of the original Barry, but there's also a, uh, a certain sense of di- of uh, diminishing um, um, feelings or diminishing um, notion of who Barry Rosen is. That, that's from my emotional point of view. I you know I the captivity was terribly dramatic. Um, it was something that we I was totally un, un prepped for absolutely it seemed as if uh it land it lasted for an eternity and then when i came back I, the issue for me more than anything else was my family my ability to get back and actually connect with my my wife and my two young very young children at that time i wanted to keep our family going you know many of our of my colleagues have had many problems concerning their family relations. People have turned into alcoholics. People have... The divorce been, ran high? What? Divorce was also running oh, yes. high divorce with people. Is very yeah. is, is ran high. Um, some people I remember who were looking forward to see their families came back and totally disconnected from their family. In fact, the children have never spoken to the to the parents ever again. Now, here's the interesting part, or my question. Again, no formal training whatsoever in how to handle a situation like this. Not at all. Did the government, the United States government, open up any of its doors? Meaning, did anyone come and talk to you, POW camp survivors, survivors of traumatic experiences in the military? PTSD really wasn't even discussed or identified back then. Mm-hmm. Was there any assistance given to you, or were you just off the plane, go through the routine of, of, of uh, the ticker tape parade, the whole nine yards, and then you're sitting in your own living room like two weeks later? <laughs> well, it was something like that. I mean, um, we did spend a day at, uh, at State Department Medical. Okay. Um, and then a year later, they brought us back one other time. But but other than that, I mean, there hasn't been much support at all from the State Department or the U.S. government. (laughs) I honestly feel that what happened is that when President Carter lost the election, I think President Reagan did not want to have us around as a symbol of failure for the United States. You know, I have to agree with you on that. And I never thought about it till you just said it, but I have to agree with you on that. We were entering a new era with Reagan. We were coming out of a very dark period. If you want to go back to to Nixon at that point, 74, 75, the fall of Saigon, leading into it all. And I think you're right. I think the Reagan administration saw this as, okay, let's give them their due. Let's move them on. Absolutely. And at that time, Secretary of State Haig was the... Uh, the secretary, and he made it very clear to all of us, we want you back at work now. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's typical Hague, typical Hague. And there was no sensitivity at all. Uh, there was nothing to comfort us at all. Uh, that is, and you know something, uh, it doesn't shock me to hear this. Um, I was in seventh grade, sixth, seventh grade when this was going down, but I followed it very, very closely. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I had a mock debate in my seventh grade history class on what to do, and uh, I was calling for a uh, uh, a hostage rescue attempt. <laughs> I remember about two weeks later, it kind of quasi happened and unfortunately failed, which leads me to this question. Were you and the other hostages even aware that a rescue attempt had been made and what the aftermath was? No, not not at all. We were not informed at all. In fact, what happened on April 24th, 25th, when the attempted uh, uh, rescue was, was uh, proceeding and then uh, the, the end of, of, of that attempt, in, which, which occurred in total misery for yes. For many of many of the people who died, I think there were nine who tried to rescue us. Um, uh, basically, uh, there was absolutely no knowledge. We were taken out of the embassy mm-hmm. blind. 
blindfolded as usual, uh, put into vans, and these vans were repainted as we sat in the vans. Wow. And then some some of us were spread out, all, all of us in many ways, were spread out all over the country. Some of my colleagues actually were on airplanes, blindfolded, and landed in, in Mashhad in eastern Iran. I and, and several others were tied hand and foot, uh, and we were sent all over the country. I was sent to the middle of, I think, I thought it was the middle of, of Iran and Isfahan. Okay. Uh, the famous city of Isfahan. Yeah, right afterwards they separated all of you because there was a fear factor that it could happen again. Barry, please hold for a moment. I've got to go into a commercial break, and I want to come back, and I want to continue with this. You are listening to Life Unedited. Today, my special guest, former American hostage, Iranian hostage, Barry Rosen. Be back in a few moments. Together, we have grown. Our life together is so precious. Together we have grown. We have grown. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my special guest, Barry Rosen, one of the 52 American hostages taken in Iran from November 4th, 1979 to January 20th, 1981. Barry, I'm going to go through a quick timeline for my listeners because I don't really think a lot of people might have forgotten or they were too young to truly understand. Mm -hmm. Now, you were in, when did you get in country? I got in country in November of 1978. Okay. I I was in Iran during the beginning of martial law Mm -hmm. when the Shah already said I made mistakes and then things started to tumble uh, completely. Banks were were burned. Um, uh, soldiers were everywhere. It seemed like the regime was falling apart pretty quickly by that time. It had happened or started at least in January previously to uh, my arrival. Now I, so it was a be, uh, not a good time for me to arrive. To, yeah, here. yeah, you kind of came right as the... Uh, they like to say the S was starting to hit the fan. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, can see that. But I want my audience to understand Iran and how it plays, how they play out in the international community. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iran was very, very important during World War II, their oil. Absolutely. Uh, like I said, the United States kind of had a battle with it concerning the Nazis. The Iranian government at the time tried to stay neutral. But they were a player then. Then you flash forward, 1953, the United States puts the Shaw into power. Now, when I say that, we have to understand that is a CIA-backed coup d'etat that right. puts the Shaw of Iran in power. Well, he, he was the figurehead mm-hmm. of a constitutional yeah. monarchy, but he, he wanted total control over the military. And that's where he and Mossadegh, uh, the prime minister of Iran— who nationalized oil and, um, yeah. and, in fact, was precipitous to the uh, CIA attempt to overthrow the regime. There you go. And then the Shah, as most dictators will in order to stay in power, ruled with an iron fist, was not the nicest guy. Uh, if you were against him, you were arrested without trial, without any human rights, and a lot of times you were tortured and or killed or both. Uh, this goes on until a certain time period. The uh, Ayatollah Khomeini had been exiled for 15 years, I believe, if I'm recalling it correctly, to France. Right. And then it starts. The Shah is overthrown in February of 79. The younger people, the students, as they're referred to, had had enough. What happens after that is Khomeini returns. So now you're bringing in Islamic law. Now... Barry, you were here for this one. I don't think a lot I, of people... I, was, I yeah. was there totally for the Shah's exit, which you was saw actually it. January 22nd, yep. 19th. Oh, sorry, take that back. You are correct. And then and then Khomeini came in on February 1, and I was in the streets uh, of Tehran 
and when all this was, when he came back, the jubilation, the um, pictures of Khomeini everywhere, uh, it, it, it was if, and the theory was, by many people, that he was the Gandhi of Iran. Yes. But under, underneath, and, and if you read his, his, uh, his writings, I mean, he was totally uh, like a laser beam on the fact that the, the mullahs would build a theocracy. Um, the, so he was working towards that while there was a provisional government set up, mm-hmm. a kind of, I would say, dem- dem- somewhat on a democratic side, uh, but that, that uh, provisional government was totally under the thumb of Khomeini. And I think the real the real problem in you know in in this instance was that uh, the nine months from the revolution to um, our being taken was a period in which Iran was under a tremendous amount of turbulence. The uh, the theocracy was being built in a, to a certain degree. There was chaos all over the place. But the real issue that determined my life for the next 444 days on November 4th was the uh, Shah arriving in the United States yes. for medical assistance. Yes. And he came in, uh, and and that was the time that we, many of us in the embassy, had written to Washington. And I was the press attaché. I write cables and talking about how the situation is looking on the ground, and it, look, and it was looking very badly for us because uh, Khomeini was reminding all of all of uh, the Iranians who were part, part and parcel of a, a revolution that this may be another attempt by the United States to commit a coup and bring the Shah back. So we were cabling not only it was entire um, uh, embassy. Uh, the charge, we felt that we needed to get out. Well, that leads me. Happened. Well, now, that leads me to something that I think most Americans do not know. Let's talk about the Valentine's Day open house situation, where Marine Kenneth Krauss, which ironically enough I learned actually this morning. Uh, grew up not too far from where I presently live in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. I was shocked. Mm. The embassy is stormed somewhat. Uh, Kenneth Krauss is taken. He's a Marine guard, and that's what the Marines do in a lot of places. They guard the American embassies. That's one of their tasks. And he was taken hostage. He was tortured. He was actually sentenced to death, uh, convicted of murder. Uh, Mm -hmm. The embassy itself from what I understand, is held under siege for about three hours. Then yeah, it's I, the, was, you know, I, I, I was there. Okay, and I'm just giving, just giving the timeline yeah. to the thing. Right. And that's what I have to ask you. Now, this happens six, seven months before right. the real incident's going to begin. Now, from what I understand, and you can hopefully help me here too, there were about 1,000 people working in the American embassy at that time, and then it dramatically dropped, I think, to less than 70? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. That was an amazing day. I was actually with the ambassador in his office, Ambassador Sullivan, Mm -hmm. and um, talking about trying to get one of the American journalists' body out of Iran. He was killed during the conflict on February uh, 12th, which was considered the Revolution Day in Iran. And... Uh, we were actually, we were actually, uh, this was the, the, uh, the invasion of the embassy by a right-wing guerrilla group actually took place on February 14th, St. Valentine's Day, very, very um, um, close to St. Valentine's Day in America, where mm-hmm. things, you know, the, uh, you know, the people who were mafiosa were killing people <laughs> all over the place. Yep. Well, well, this is the same same sort of deal. All of a sudden, we were invaded, and uh, I was one of the few who knew Farsi very well to be able to try to negotiate with them. The ambassador asked me to do that, hmm. 
but in a matter of, of, of an hour or so, I was held up against the wall with several others, and we were about to get executed, when in fact, indeed, Khomeini's troops actually came in to save us. This was during the time of the provisional government, which was trying to have some sort of relationship with the United States. Um, and that was an amazing shocker for everybody and a realization that things were going dramatically very badly for the United States and for security reasons within Iran. It was total chaos. I, I spent most of the day um, hiding in several places and trying to work with people who were in the embassy to get them away from windows and everything else because there was still rocket propelled grenades going off all over the embassy. Well, getting back to, uh, you kind of shocked me for a second. I didn't know this. Being able to speak Farsi was, uh, I would assume, to your advantage. Were you used as a mediator a lot during the crisis when you were held captive? I think it was it's an advantage and also a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. I was able to learn, learn a lot of things because I could hear things on the radio, even in captivity. Mm -hmm. In the first day in captivity, I heard things very early on when we were taken that Ayatollah Khomeini and supported that. Once I learned that he supported the takeover, then I knew we were going to be there for a very long time. Now, this is a total breach, this first incident, of international law, how diplomats are supposed to be treated. Now, again, growing up, I do not remember a tremendous outcry from the international community to what had happened at the American Embassy in Tehran. Why, and my next question for you would be, they take it down from 1,000 people to a little under 70. Why did you stay? Well, when we were uh, asked to go home after that, that event on February 14th, uh, we, you know, we, we closed the doors of the embassy and we flew out. And then there were, negotiate, there were um, discussions in Washington with some of us who had been there for a while. Um, I think I went back because I was so involved with everything. I thought it was such a historic moment. I didn't really think that I, I was so um, smug about my own self in the sense that I knew what was going on, I was able to survive, and you know, I didn't think enough of my family, and, and, and uh, I thought more of my career and, and the excitement of what was going on. Well, if it's any consolation, I think I would have done the exact same thing. And I don't know if I should be proud of that answer or not either, but mm -hmm. I, I completely understand it. You're living history here. And at the same time, you kind of hold a special place in it because you do understand the language. Mm -hmm. And that's a big key, especially in situations like that. Now, it's kind well, of... You know, yeah, I, you know, I wanted to add something else. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. In the nuclear negotiations with Iran, mm -hmm. all the discussions are taking place as if the hostage crisis never took place. That is, in the press and everywhere else, the United States and Iran broke off relations when the revolution occurred, according mm -hmm. to the media and according to all the people in the, you know, in the negotiations. Not true. It took place when the hostage crisis occurred. So that, You're right. A lot of people do not remember that, because you just made a point a few moments ago about how the provisional government, they were trying to work with the United States. So until the hostage situation officially takes effect November 4th, 1979, they're trying to be diplomatic. Then it ends. Right. And, and I think that in the nuclear negotiations, uh, that this is purposeful. They don't want to admit the truth, both sides. Iran has never been held accountable for the taking of American hostages. It is actually, you know, amazing, a phenomena to me, that as if all the discussions about this whole thing, about the nuclear uh, negotiations, have never said, there's never been one word about the hostage crisis as the precipitating uh, issue, and no, no discussion about 
went through, no discussion about compensation at all. And it absolutely goes against the grain to actually see this is all happening as if the hostage crisis never occurred. Mary, hold on to that thought. We're going to take our second commercial break, and I want to come back and get further into the timeline. But I agree with everything you're saying, and I've noticed that over the last couple of years. You are listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. My special guest today, former Iranian hostage Barry Rosen. We'll be back in a few moments. We have grown. Our life together is so precious together. Back to Life Unedited, I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my special guest, Barry Rosen, uh, one of the 52 hostages during the Iranian hostage crisis. Barry, I'm going to ask you, I, I don't know if you know, I mean, pretty sure you know this song. Would you have any idea why I picked it? Well, it does hit a... Uh, um an emotion in me. The, um, the, absolutely. Well, I can tell you this. I purposely picked this because this was the number one hit song on the Billboard Top 40 the day you left Iranian airspace. How do you like that? I, did, I didn't know that. And I thought it was, when I, when I looked it up, I like to do things differently with the show. I like to play music somehow related to the topic or the mm -hmm. person. When I looked it up, I couldn't believe that John Lennon's just like starting over would be the number one hit song at that moment. Hmm. I just thought it was somewhat poetic. Um, it is. I, I thought it was. Uh, kind of getting back to the timeline. Now, now I have, let me go in this direction for a second. As a Jewish man in the Middle East, even before the crisis, how did you feel? Did you feel out of place? Did you feel threatened in any way? I mean, you know, was it kind of like looking from the outside in? No, not, not at all. I was able to negotiate Iranian culture and society that um, I, as a Jew, I mean, uh, um, most Iranians never knew that I was Jewish because they don't know of American Jewish names. There are Iranian Jewish names that are, that are totally different. Mm -hmm. Like Musa Zadeh, uh, son of Moses, you know, something mm -hmm. like that would be the name the name of uh, an Iranian Jew, but not, you know, Rosen or Rosenberg or Goldstein or whatever. So the, these Eastern European names, so they, they, had to, they couldn't know it. But I mean, uh, Iranian anti-Semitism was just as virulent as the, uh, it was in, in the 30s in, in, in in Germany and all mm -hmm. over Eastern Europe too, but I I was able to negotiate the society. I think, but once I was in prison, that was an issue that came up between the guards and myself, and uh, so that, that was a a, pro a major problem. Um, so that I, you know, I I was exposed to. Um, Ill treatment because of being Jewish, but also because I was the press attaché at the embassy, and they accused me of being a spy uh, or developing a spy ring mm -hmm. against Iran uh, because of my cable traffic, which was uh, based on the discussions that I had with editors of newspapers, people on the street, anything I, ca I could so that I could uh, really reveal what was going on in, in the culture of Iran while, you know, while the revolution was taking place. Interesting. Now, I just thought of this, and I'm curious. Did you and the other hostages get back pay for your 444 days there? Yes. Okay. Because I wanted to make sure on that one. The government's pretty good, at least in one respect, by making sure they're paying you because you're still on government time. But, but you know, it, that, that is... is Something, but there has, you know, the Algiers Accord, which actually ended our mm -hmm. captivity, which was negotiated by the Carter administration, actually um, made it impossible for us to get any compensation, whatever.
driver from from uh, Iran or from that from that deal. Anybody and everybody who is in Iran as say an engineer or companies that were building uh, construction companies that were building you know swaths of buildings all over Iran uh, received their compensation and even more from what was going on from the Iranian government, hmm. the funds from the Iranian government. But we were never permitted to sue Iran for terrorist activities or whatever. That was part of the Algiers Agreement. That then. was part of the Algiers Accords, and that's what we've been fighting an uphill battle ever since then. I guess it's been told to you that if it wasn't for a provision like that, you might not have been able to come home if they sold it to you that way? Yes, they have. And, you know, sometimes some of us, I mean, we, we, we talk about it, and, and we would have said no. You really would have said no. That's interesting. You would have said no to the to the agreement that's going to get you out because of the one provision we're discussing where you would not be allowed to sue Iran. That may sound ridiculous, but... It does and it doesn't because there's almost a pride involved in that, isn't there? Absolutely. Total pride. I mean, to be treated that way after it was all over, and I know President Carter maintains that, Look, that's what we had to do, and but I, I don't. I think uh, it could have been different. It certainly could have been different. Uh, but the Iranians know how to negotiate, as we <laughs> see here in in the nuclear deal. Um, it's uh, an attempt to stretch things out. They did that during the Iran hostage crisis, with any talks with Iran, with uh, with anybody from Iran, uh, lies. And, obfuscations and all that. And even now, Iran, Iran is trying during the nuclear negotiations to put the blame on the United States if, in, if the, uh, the negotiations fail. Let's move forward to the date, to November 4th, 1979. It begins early, around 6.30 a.m. It's been cited. Things are starting to build. Uh, they start to come over the gates. At first, uh, I think a letter or a note was slipped. Don't be afraid. It's only going to—we're only going to do a sit-in, something mm -hmm. along those lines. Then, mm -hmm. all hell breaks loose. What's going on? Well, first with you, of course, but what's going on inside? Shredding of papers, diplomatic things being destroyed, panic. Did any of, we'll say, the civilian people? Did any of you guys go for the weapons that were available? No, I mean, I mean, no. All the Marines were had weapons, mm -hmm. and all the Marines were ready and waiting for an order from uh, the Charge, who happened to be in the Foreign Ministry at that time when things were going down. In fact, uh, Charge Langen landed up uh, living in the Foreign Ministry for the 444 days as sanctuary. Yeah, they were told, the Marines were told, were told to stand down, correct? Stand down, yep. yes, and that was the right, I think that was the right decision. You think the country would have exploded further? I mean, really would have taken off if the Marines had defended Absolutely. the embassy? Yeah, I was told by one of the Iranian masterminds who I met in Paris in 1998 um, that they were hoping and waiting for the Marines to shoot one of their people so that they could kill us all. So it was just a matter of one more step forward and then that's it. Absolutely. Got to give credit then to the young Marines at the time for not even pulling the trigger on their own. Many of the young Marines regret it. <laughs> I bet they do. Yes, personally they feel that they failed. I can relate they to that. Their country. I can definitely relate to that. Having a military background myself, I can completely relate to that. So it's all going down, Barry, and then there's that famous picture of you. Mm -hmm. You're Obviously, you've been taken hostage. They've got you blindfolded. They're parading you around. It's pretty much what was done by the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, to United States airmen that were captured, paraded around. What's going through your mind? I mean, basically, they're... They're making you into a puppet, into a toy at this moment. And I know it, it sounds like you're a very prideful man. What's going through your mind? Well, I was 
one of the first people to be taken because my office was outside the mm. chancery itself because previously uh, the building that I was in was destroyed. Um, I tried to have a lockdown in my office, but of course they barged through, broke the doors, and held an automatic weapon to my head, blindfolded me, and took me out. Uh, it must have been overwhelming. I mean, you're blindfolded, you're being pretty much ushered, and then to hear the people, the chanting death to America, yeah. chanting Aitola, you know, chanting Khomeini's name, it, it must be overwhelming your senses. Well, it, it was an amazingly difficult, difficult time. Difficult is not the word. Just emotionally, you're going through so many changes in your mind. You know, am I going to get killed? Am I shot? Screaming and yelling, and you know, I one of the biggest problems that I that I've had was that I I liked Iranians as a Peace Corps volunteer. I was there, and all this turned against me. I thought that was the issue. That was the crazy issue. You know, I think I can. I think I understand where you're coming from with that. Their background, they're Parisian. They're, they see themselves a little bit differently, don't they, as far as you know, being a part of the Middle East? Yeah, they're, I mean, ever since they became, well, look, it was a great empire uh, previous to Islam. Uh, it was several great dynasties. Mm-hmm. You know, the Achaemenid dynasty fought Alexander you know, the Great, um, built all these wonderful pre-Islamic, a piece of architecture, then the Sasanian dynasty, which was against the uh, the Byzantines, it was the two great powers in the area, and then the Arab invasion just destroyed uh, Iran, Iranian uh, society and culture, and and also Byzantium too. Um, and Iran, uh, once it became a Muslim country, it still tried to sort of build its own culture within the world of Islam. And Farsi came, or the Persian language, was had disappeared for several centuries after the Arab invasions, and uh, came back in, in poetry, and then uh, Iranians had once again spoken their language again, and in Arabic script. So it was a whole, it's a different world, completely the great poets, uh, histories, and all of that, Many of it took place in Iran. Excellent. Barry, hold on one more moment. We're going to take another break. You are listening to Life Unedited, my host, my special guest, Barry Rosen, one of the 52 American hostages held in captivity by Iran for 444 days. We'll be right back. We have grown. We have grown. Our life together is so precious. Together we have grown. We have grown. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my special guest, Barry Rosen, one of the 52 American hostages held in captivity for 444 days. We have been discussing. Oh, the past of Iran leading up to the actual hostage crisis and going into where it sits in the future with the nuclear arms talks. Um, We're going to kind of go here into the final segment. We're going to get into actually a little bit more of what happened during the crisis itself. Now, Barry, were you kind of put into a leadership position at any point? Did you feel that? Because, again, uh, your understanding of the language, again, had to be, as you said it earlier, a blessing and a curse. Well, there was no really such thing as a leadership position in the sense that we were all isolated from each other, so different groups. Sometimes we were together for a month in a cell or in a dark space somewhere in some part of Iran, which was the misery of it all. I mean, total darkness, practically. Um... No, I mean, it's, it, there's no way to have any leadership if you disperse everybody all over the 
that you were in, the people you were with at that moment where you could talk and possibly, you know, exchange views and talk about what we could do with the Iranians themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. we the problems we had with, were with our guards who were either very angry toward us or sometimes sympathetic, and the sympathetic ones wanted a visa, believe it or not. I believe it. They wanted out. They saw what was happening and thought that you could grant that wish. Exactly. As if I, I could do that. Yeah, but they don't know any and, better. That's the problem. And as if I want, would want, would want to. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. What did you do to occupy your mind those 444 days? Now, I know they moved you around in different things, but I assume a lot of time was spent with some people who were in total isolation. How do you occupy yourself? Well, there was, uh, there were always military with us, so they had this survival routine in many ways. We marched in a, in a Form 8 in our cell. Interesting. We'd go on for miles, just miles. Yeah. How many eights can we do in a, say, 20-foot cell? There was four people in the cell. Um... We had the ability, we had some pens and pencils and other things to draw or whatever we could do. Most of the time was spent um, with yourself, um, and that could be very destructive, too. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail. I I don't think it's necessary. Uh, Obviously, there was mistreatment. There was some forms of torture. I've read about them. Uh, They're horrific. And again, I don't think we need to go into no. tremendous detail there. But I, I am curious on this, too, though. Did anyone ever, I assume you probably did mention, hey, this is breaking international law. Yeah. Was somehow, because they were students, they weren't part of a government entity, they felt they could get around that? No, I mean, they were convinced that the United States had... And, and the world did not belong, did not relate to Iran. The international law was self-imposed, was imposed on Iran. And they, they didn't accept international law. They didn't accept the notion that uh, taking over an embassy was, was uh, against international law. They, they maintained that we were the spies. We, we spies had ruined Iran. And so this was total retribution. That's all. Were you aware at all, you and the other hostages, that six had been able to escape through the British embassy onto the Canadian embassy in what became called the uh, Great Canadian Caper, which we know as Argo in the film? Were you aware of any of that at the time, or was that— At the time, no. None. I was not aware of it at all. And interestingly, Argo— in many ways, was a sideshow. I mean, it was a sideshow, and 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 the film wasn't really um, true to facts either. It never is. And uh, you know, uh, it was off the wall in terms of many things. But it's Hollywood that would like to do the easy story, but not the hard story. No, the hard story would be a hard sell. Yeah. Unfortunately, oh. to the pe- to the people who need to know it, though, who want to know it, like myself. I would like the reality aspect of it, but you know that doesn't sell in Hollywood. No, at no that point. but it would, it would have made a great film. It really would if they had, if they wanted to go for something that was dramatic and important in terms of um, how human beings can survive or have the issues confronting them in a, a time of ultimate danger. Was there talk? of possibly trying to overtake the guards' possible escape? Or was there a fear if one or two got out, the rest would be taken to task for it? Well, there, there were attempts by a couple in the big, couple of people in the beginning when we were in the embassy. But they were brought back and they were punished. And there was, we could not, punished by isolation, mm-hmm. we could not really... Uh, escape in the streets of Iran, too. It would have been so impossible, even if we escaped. You really had to, I mean, uh, it, it would have been to actually navigate out of Iran. 
it just seems to be totally impossible. Now, in September of 1980, uh, Iraq takes advantage of the situation, much like uh, Russia did with Afghanistan in December of 79 against the United States. Iraq takes advantage of the situation and decides to invade Iran, which kicks off negotiations to, to a higher level. Are you and the other hostages aware of any of this, that, again, Iraq has invaded Iran? Yes. And point of fact, I was in one of the worst prisons in Iran uh, during that time uh, the Iraqi Air Force was flying over Tehran and attempting to bomb um, near Tehran. We heard that. And the students, if you want to call them students, were yelling death to Saddam Hussein, not death to America this time. So you were able to we figure were, that one out then? Yes, I was able to, through, through the cadence of what they were screaming, I could understand that it was Saddam Hussein. Now, this is September of 1980. You and the other hostages will be released at that point in January of 1981. So obviously the talks did increase and did take on an urgency. Did your living conditions and how you were treated overall begin to change? No. Ah. We stayed in the prison until uh, late December, early January, actually. Um, prison then became so cold that they had to get us out and also they wanted to put us they put us in more uh, accommodating accommodations and that's when um, the uh, the uh, I believe the Algerians came in to inspect us so they were setting it up to show that show the world that we were living in a very comfortable setting yeah that you'd been well cared for exactly at that point so you don't want the point international they, backlash right yeah. in point of fact they were Iranians were interviewing us on tape and telling us that we have to say that we were treated well and i said i never will say that this was in rc and then they and they said well you'll be left back when when they they're all going away or going home i said okay let's do that Jeez. Did they give you any indication, Mary, uh, that the time had come that you would be boarding a plane and, and leaving America, uh, no. leaving Iranian? Nothing. There was no prep. Nothing. They just took you. They just took us out of our our rooms, blindfolded us again, put us on a a bus. We didn't know where we were going. We thought we were going to another destination. After about an hour. Everybody was told to get off the bus. They ripped the, the blindfold off our, off my my face, and I had to run a gauntlet of Iranian students who were spitting at me. And I saw uh, this airplane. And I saw somebody waving towards me, and they said, "Get on!" And I got on 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 the uh, airplane. Now, was that an American airplane on? That was, no, I was okay. an Algerian. Okay, so it was an Algerian plane. They were going to take you. Did they take you right to Germany, to Ramstein, or was it an American plane that, that met them? No, this plane took us to Algeria, gotcha. to Algiers. Okay. And that's when the Algerian, and that's where the first photos of us were, were taken by the media. And then we moved to, to Germany. Now, I understand that I think you guys were shown the Russia-United States hockey game at some point on your travel back? Yes. <laughs> how did, in all honesty, how does that make you feel after going through this traumatic experience that in some ways, at least in my mind, they're, they're waving the flag at you, so to speak? How does yeah, that feel? Are. I mean, they are. Yeah. But, you know, like, sometimes American exceptionalism really bothers me. Mm -hmm. Because in, in this case... It was, again, you know, we beat the Russians. Uh, it was good. I mean, I felt a sense of real pride, and but we did see it, and it was, it was exciting for us. But like anything else, I mean, more, more than anything else, it was uh, uh, 
everything that passed during this this crazy period in my life uh, of trying to get out of get my mind out of imprisonment and into into the life of my family. Barry, um, what was the feeling about President Carter within the the group of hostages? Was there blame there? There was a lot of blame, okay. but I think when President Carter had the had the, I thought the nerve and to come back to come to Germany and to meet us at Ramstein and actually uh, talk to us and say he, and I apologize for what for the entire crisis. It's sort of, in many ways, you know, made it better. Of course, there's such a lingering issue with him on this that uh, it's hard to, to remove a sense of total disappointment and dislike for what went on. I can understand that. Basically, there's a man and in government that he runs that holds your life in their hands. I, I completely understand that. Barry, I want to. I really want to thank you for coming on today and uh, telling us your story, surviving 444 days in Iran, being held captive. I know it's not an easy thing for you to talk about. I don't. Anyone can imagine that it would be. But I want to thank you again for taking the time to go into the details, which I think a lot of Americans really don't know the true stories inside that time period. Um. No, I, I appreciate the amount of time that you, you've given me. Uh, not a problem. But, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mr. Rosen. No, I, I just want to say I want to thank you for hosting the show mm-hmm. and uh, talking to me very uh, honestly and truthfully about what went on in, in Iran and what's going on right now, even in Iran and the United States. Well, I'll offer you this as I as I as we sign off here. You have an open door anytime you'd like to come on and discuss any topic. It does not have to be your 444 days it can just be the politics of the situation okay so i appreciate that you have been listening to life unedited i'm your host john Averly. again my special guest today barry rosen one of the 52 americans held hostage in iran from november 4th 1979 to january 20th 1981 thanks again mr rosen you're very welcome john Although our love is still special Let's take a chance and fly away somewhere